Hear now the words of our God in the 23rd Psalm, beginning in verse 1. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, this is quite familiar, and so I'm asking that by the power of your Spirit, you would come and answer the prayer I prayed the first week. You would drive away, blow away the fog of foreign imagery. Help us not fall victim to thinking we're too familiar with this passage to get anything from it. I pray, in other words, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this word. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Three weeks we've been in this passage, just six verses. By my count, there's some 113 words in Psalm 23, which means when I'm done today, I will probably have preached more minutes than there are words in the 23rd Psalm. Consequently, I'm trusting that most of you, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you can now say at least after these three weeks, if you didn't know it, you're now pretty familiar with it. Lord willing, all of that foreign imagery of all the shepherd and sheep stuff that most of us aren't terribly familiar with, Lord willing, that has now become more familiar to you, and you're conversant with the imagery of the psalm. My suspicion, though, is that the vast majority of us in this room would say we already were pretty familiar with this psalm. I wonder how many of you, just a moment ago, as I stood here and read the passage, how many of you didn't even need to look down at your Bible? Perhaps you were just looking right up at me because you knew this psalm by heart. I've had countless uh, numbers of you come and recite it to me. I've even had a child as young as four years of age stand out in that lobby and recite it to me word perfect. I had a video sent me in Facebook inbox of an entire family sitting around a dining room table reciting the 23rd Psalm in unison. Surely you know this psalm, but, but I pray you hear that it is one thing to know the psalm. It's a whole other thing to know the shepherd of the psalm. It's one thing to know the psalm of the shepherd. It's another thing to know the shepherd of that psalm. Years ago, there was reportedly an actor. He was well-known, mid-20th century. He was evidently invited to come to his pastor's 50th anniversary celebration, and at his pastor's request, he was asked to recite with all of his trained eloquence the 23rd Psalm. It was his pastor's favorite passage. This actor agreed to do this under one condition, that if he did it, the pastor would come up behind him and likewise recite the 23rd Psalm. And so he comes and stands before this great crowd that had gathered for this party, and with all the trained eloquence that you would expect from an actor, he presents it with Shakespearean quality, moves the room. And then this untrained, ineloquent, stammering 
pastor, who's probably 70 plus years of age, comes up behind him and similarly recites the psalm. And lo and behold, that gathering was more moved by the latter than the former, which puzzled a few. In fact, as the actor went and sat down, one of the uh, bystanders said to him, what do you make of this? I mean, why were they more moved by that pastor than by you? And the actor is reported to have leaned over and replied, I may know the psalm, but that guy knows the shepherd. And I wondered, do you? How many of you know the shepherd? Is the Lord your shepherd? Perhaps you will profess, yes, I've now come to see from verses 1 through 3 that he is indeed my shepherd in good times. I recognize that all the good in my life, all the green pastures, all the still waters, those have been brought to me by my shepherd. He is my shepherd in good times. If you're here last week, perhaps you can confess that he who is your shepherd in good times is also your shepherd in bad times, that he who brings you to green pastures has also led you into the valley. But I wonder if you can profess he is in good times and confess he is in bad times, I wonder how many of you are quietly second-guessing that he will be for all time. For the song we just sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, hits you so close to home, you're thinking, Kyle, if you only knew my heart, if you only knew how prone I am to wander, if you only knew what a miracle it is that I'm even a Christian right now, and sometimes I wonder if I even am, sometimes I wonder if I'm going to stay one, if that's you, you're in good company. I believe this psalm ends as it does, because metaphorically, the shepherd is taking the sheep through this long journey through the green pastures, the still waters, through the valley, up to this mountain peak, and he's going to take us full circle all the way home. And verses 5 and 6 illustrate for us a profound yet simple truth that if you believe it, it'll sustain your faith the rest of your days. Hear this, dear church. I want you to see that verses 5 and 6 illustrate in a most poetic way that God is never going to let you go. He who has led you this far is never going to leave you. He who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. What God starts, he always finishes. And to see this, we need to clear up a debate in verses 5 and 6. There actually is a debate. If you look at your Bible, you may side with what is a common interpretation of verses 5 and 6. There are many who read, beginning in verse 5, and they notice a metaphor shift. They see in verses 1 through 4 him talking about a shepherd and sheep. But did you notice in verse 5 it almost seems like he shifted the metaphor? It's as if he's now talking about going into somebody's house, dining at their table, drinking from their cup, house of the Lord even. It makes you think maybe now God isn't a shepherd, he's a host. And I do think that that's a valid way to read this. In other words, it's a poem. It's metaphorical, so it's notoriously difficult to get precise on what David might have meant. But there is another prevailing view. It's one that I am more in favor of. And that is the view that the metaphor hasn't changed. That indeed, verses 5 and 6 continue the shepherd-sheep metaphoric imagery. I want you to see in verse 5, when he says you prepare a table, that word 
table, shakar, that word literally means spread out. And many scholars assume that he is likely referring to what might be called a tableland, which is a word we never use. I wonder how many of you are more familiar with the word plateau, or maybe you know the Spanish word mesa. That is likely what he's referring to, for in that ancient Near Eastern culture, particularly in Palestine, it was not uncommon for shepherds to lead their sheep in the summer up to the high elevations of tablelands where they would be able to graze in cooler temperatures before fall would call the sheep all the way back home. And I contend that this imagery is what the psalmist continues. I think, in other words, that the famed uh, psalm of the shepherd is not just verses 1 through 4. It's verse 1 through 6. And I want you to see in this imagery that I believe David is recollecting that just as he would uh, faithfully sustain his sheep in the hot summer months and in the fall bring them all the way back home, so too we have a good God who never lets us go. He is keeping us uh, sustained until he at last brings us home. I want you to see in this text that it answers in my judgment the great how. How does he do this? Five ways I note in this text, God never will let you go until at last he brings you home. Let me just state my outline from the outset, and then we'll break it down as we move through the text. First off, I want you to notice, and I'm using this in language that a child could understand, so if there's any kids in this room, I want you to hear me. This, what I have to say is not just for mom and dad, it's for you. If you are in Christ, he is going to keep you safe. If you are in Christ, he is going to make you sound. If you are in Christ, he is going to fill you up. If you're in Christ, he's going to chase you down. And praise be to God, he is going to bring you all the way home. There's my outline, but i got to admit, I got a little insecure about it. Because Thursday, I was asked to do a funeral in our chapel here uh, for a member of the church. And when his daughter got up to testify, and she did so so eloquently... She started to alliterate her points, which alliterate means all the words start with the same letter. And I'm thinking, mm, you know, I'm used to some alliteration. And then all of a sudden she says, I've done this in honor of Pastor Kyler, who likes to alliterate his sermons. And I was like, oh, well, man, I've already finished my sermon outline. I feel like I need to go back and edit it so that I don't let her down. Challenge accepted. If you guys want an alliterated outline, I could say that our good God, he preserves us, protects us, provides us, pursues us. He'll perfect us one day. I could say that he is going to secure us, sustain us, supply us, seek us, and save us. I could keep going, but we're just going to stick with the first outline that I published because I had already sent it to the, to the folks. Let's, <laughs> that was not meant to be it's really more cheesy than anything. I probably shouldn't do that. Let's consider the first mark today. I want you to see from this text in verse 5 that he is going to keep you safe on this journey of life. I want you to note that when he brings him to the tableland, did you notice he says he prepares this table before me? What does he mean by preparing the land? Well, what was common in this day was when a shepherd would bring sheep to these remote, high-elevated pastures, that these pastures were prone to have two mortal enemies of sheep. One was poisonous plants, another was predators. The fields would be overrun with these plants that sheep were allergic to, like azaleas, acorns, mountain laurel, etc. And so the shepherd would have to go in and uproot these, or at the very least guide the sheep away from them so that they would only graze on that which they could eat. 
Also, there were predators that would often lurk on the periphery, knowing that sheep were there ripe for the taking, and so a shepherd would stand guard. Sometimes, if they were going to graze there for a while, he would even build a crude wall around so that the sheep could uh, pasture in peace. And I think David is reflecting back with a poet's eye, and he is seeing, in other words, the proactive, protective, providential provision of his good shepherd, God Almighty, caring for him. I don't want to stretch this analogy too far, but it is as if he is reflecting how he as a shepherd would care for his sheep by upweeding all the poisonous plants, and he is recollecting that his God is a good God who has prepared a table for him, so to speak, has uprooted all the poisonous plants of sin that are tempting him. And do you realize that this is a good ministry of our great God? That sin is like a weed that can grow rampant, but ours is a faithful God who is leading us, who is pointing out to us that what we want to sample, by the way, are we not like sheep? Just a sheep want to sample and eat everything? How many students in this room right now are presently nibbling off something that you're thinking it's harmless because you're just trying it? You only live once. Let's just try it and see how it goes. Oh, would you hear that there is a good shepherd this moment who is warning you, stay away from the poisonous plant of temptation. Come to the green pastures that I have prepared for you. Also, he's probably recollecting that his is a good God who is protecting him from the chief predator of all predators, Satan himself, which the scripture literally describes as a roaring lion seeking to devour. And praise God that John tells us in John 10 that nobody, even Satan himself, nobody can snatch us from our Father's hand. We are like sheep, but our shepherd is such that he alone can keep you safe. So take heart, my friends. Though the predators and the poisonous plants of this world are threatening you, you have a good shepherd who will keep you safe to the end. But the reason I belabor this point is because I wonder how many of you are privately thinking, my experience is really that I'm keeping myself safe. It feels like I'm doing the work. I'm the one that's staying faithful to my spouse. I'm the one that's keeping my nose clean. I'm the one that's, I'm, I'm doing this. I feel like I've done this. And if that's you, I just want you to consider this simple illustration. I have a four-year-old little daughter, Eliza, and every time we cross the street together, she knows to reach for my hand. She's not going to cross the street without holding dad's hand. Now, how many of you in this room think that if I, as a father worth my salt, how many of you think that I just limply lay my hand out there and let her in all of her strength as a four-year-old hold on to my hand as we cross the busy road? She may think she is. It's probably her lived experience. She feels like she's holding on to daddy's hand. But what is the truth of the matter? The truth is, though she may feel like she's holding on to my hand, she's got a loving father who is in truth holding on to her hand. And how many of you feel like in your feeble faith, childlike faith, you are holding on to God? You have kept yourself safe. You are fighting the good fight. You are keeping the faith. You're holding on to the Father. My word to you is, if you feel weak and tired, take heart. You think you're holding on to his hand, but the glorious, wonderful truth of the matter is you have a heavenly father who is in truth holding on to your hand. God is never going to let you go. He is going to keep you safe. It is he who is preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He'll keep you safe. 
But as the old adage goes, nobody wants to just be safe. Don't you want to be safe and sound? Praise be to God. He who keeps us safe is secondly, he who's going to make us sound, which I see in the next poetic phrase. It's a somewhat ambiguous phrase. He anoints our head with oil. What do we do with this imagery of anointing our head with oil? Well, what David is probably referring to is the truth that sheep are vulnerable, susceptible, not only to poisonous plants, not only to predators, but to parasites. Now, forgive me, I know lunch is just around the corner and I'm about to spoil it, (laughs) so close your ears if you don't want to hear it. But in truth, one common malady amongst sheep was these flies would get in their nose, lay eggs, what would happen after that was disgusting. They would get so irritated, they'd beat their heads against the ground, sometimes killing themselves from the irritation. Related, they would also get a commonly uh, contagious disease called scab, which was little mites that would get in the skin, cause a rash that if it touched another sheep, it would spread to that sheep. And before you know it, the whole flock would be infected. And the only hope they had, helpless as they were, the only hope they had is if there was a shepherd nearby who would come and take oil and anoint their nose, would cover their nose with this oil to not only kill the parasites, but to protect them from future infestation, or to dip their head in this oil to heal the scab and to prevent it from passing on to the rest of the flock. And many scholars surmise that David is probably recollecting his good shepherd care for his sheep and remembering that his is a good God who has likewise protected him from the so-called parasite of sin. Now, let's think about the parasite of sin, and then let's think about how he protects us. Sin is infectious, is it not? Sin is a lot like a little cut. Paper cut seems innocuous, not really going to hurt you that bad, but the problem with a paper cut is if you don't pay attention to it, you don't clean it, it can easily get infected. And what started as something small and inconsequential can, with little notice, all of a sudden become significant. It could even, I dare say, become life-threatening if, heaven forbid, sepsis were to occur. In other words, you got to take seriously the fact that if you're not killing sin, sin can very easily be killing you. you got to be careful about the infectious nature of sin. And he is recollecting with us that God in his grace has provided an oil, so to speak, to help prevent the infectious nature of sin. Now, what is this oil? This is where I I feel like I'm on shaky ground because when you're interpreting a poem, it's so metaphorical, it feels like I can just say whatever I want and you guys will say, that was good, preacher, I've never heard that before. I do think I'm on good ground when I say time and again, almost every time you see oil referenced in the Bible, it almost always has some sort of picture pointing to the Spirit of God. And I believe that the Spirit is in the mind of the psalmist when he considers how the Spirit comes, and let's put it this way, the Spirit does what only it can do to point out the infection. Do you know that's what the Spirit does for you? He actually says, hey, look, there's a cut on you. Now, how does he do that? We call that the convicting power of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that comes and says, you're a sinner. Do you see? Do you now sense this? That is a sign God's in you, by the way, if you have the Spirit convicting you. Praise God that he has given us the oil, so to speak, of the Spirit that convicts us, that points out the cut so that you can kill it before it kills you. But lest you think the Spirit is just some cosmic killjoy, that all he does is just point out sin and then kind of just leave you hanging, praise God that the Spirit not only points out the wound, he 
heals the wound. He protects it from spreading. That's called the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Paul famously remarked that we must put to death the deeds of the body. And do you remember how we do it, he says? Put to death the deeds of the body by your strength. Put to death the deeds of the body by your willpower. Put to death the deeds of the body by your pastor, your spouse. Of course, you guys recall that the precious promise of that text is if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Oh, praise God that ours is a good shepherd who's not only keeping us safe, he's making us sound. He is providing us the healing powers of the Spirit to sanctify us, to show us the species of sin in our life. He is, in other words, changing us from the inside out. He keeps us safe. He makes us sound. Thirdly, I want you to note in the next phraseology, he fills us up, which is a profound thing to consider when you are in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Have you considered how odd it would be for the psalmist to say, he fills you up, your cup overflows, when you're on a mesa? If you're familiar with geography and topography, there's one thing lacking on a high plateau or a mesa. It's water, because gravity makes all the water leave. It all goes down to the valleys. There are not lakes and rivers up on the mesa. So when shepherds would lead their sheep up to these high tablelands, they would invariably have to dig deep wells into these tablelands so that they would be a source of life-sustaining water. And I believe David is recollecting his days of bringing his sheep to these high tablelands where they would come to a well that was marked by at least two features. On the one hand, this was a costly well. Wells took a lot of work to make them exist. Consequently, towns often were built around wells. Have you noticed in the Old Testament, it seems like the Old Testament is obsessed with wells. You hear about them all the time. Cities are named after them. There's even some people named after them. It's odd. It just feels like there's a big fascination, infatuation with wells. It's because it was life-giving, life-sustaining, and it was very costly to make. And the only way they would be reliable is if you went really deep. You had to go down super deep to get to that water table so that there would be an abundant, reliable uh, flow of life-giving water. And so David is probably recollecting the wells that he would dig deep, he would get a cup of water, and it would overflow as he watered his flock. And surely he's reflecting back once again with a poet's eye and remembering how good his God has been to him, sustaining him with life-giving water, so to speak, at such a high cost doing for him what he could not actually do for himself. What sheep could dig a well? How much more can you and me sustain ourselves, quench the thirst of our spiritual souls? How can we, apart from the good grace of our God? It came at a great cost, and have you forgotten the depth of his goodness to you? How abundant his goodness is to you? The Bible is replete with examples of Just take David in the Psalms when he says time and again, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. You will quench the thirst of your people. This is a living water that if you drink of it, John says, you will never thirst again. And if David could have said that so many thousand years ago, how much more clearly ought we to see the cost and the depth 
of God's goodness to us this side of Calvary? Have you forgotten that Jesus on the cross, he drank metaphorically, he drank the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to? It gets even better. We actually get in turn to drink the full cup of his goodness and his grace. It's astonishing the cost he paid so that you might be filled up. Have you forgotten the depth of his goodness to you? That he has made it possible for you to escape the punishment you deserved? He alone has made this possible? That's why we, this side of eternity, though we sojourn in a dry and weary land where there is no water, we can take heart. For God will never let us go. He's going to keep us safe. He's going to make us sound. He's going to fill you up when you can't fill yourself up. And fourthly, I want you to see in the next verse, he who fills you up is he who's going to chase you down. Some of you in this room need to hear this because presently you're in the far country. It feels like it's by accident you even stumbled in here. Mom guilted you. Dad forced you. Perhaps you're here and People expect you to be here, but the truth of the matter is, in your soul, you are as far from God as can be, and you feel lost, utterly and completely outside the shepherd's watch care. And if that's you, I want you to note in verse 6 the wonderful language that is not immediately apparent. He says, surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Now, what is he talking about here? This doesn't sound like shepherd imagery anymore. It, honestly, in, in candor, it didn't to me until I started to read, and I found several people echo themselves, and I was astonished by this argument. And whether it's right or wrong, the, the point stands whether this uh, imagery is right. There are several scholars that will contend that David was likely referring to something Job referred to in Job 30 verse 1, and something Isaiah refers to in Isaiah 50. Job refers to sheepdogs that were commonly used to help shepherd the flocks. Isaiah echoes this by talking about herding dogs that shepherds would use in the ancient Near East to help shepherd their flocks. And many scholars wonder if David is poetically, once again, remembering the proverbial sheepdogs, twin sheepdogs of goodness and mercy, helping shepherd or follow his flock. And the reason why people make this argument is because the word follow in the original Hebrew literally means to hunt, to pursue, to track down. In other words, this isn't just like some passive following at a distance. This is something that's going to chase you down, probably evoking the imagery of a sheepdog. Now, whether or not that's true, let's just say I'm completely wrong, and he's not talking about sheep. Here's where I'm not wrong. With full assurance of faith, I can say it may not have been sheep, but goodness and mercy, they're pursuing you. I know that straight from the text. Try as you might to evade it, goodness and mercy, they are going to follow you. And just consider the imagery of the psalm. Goodness, that's welfare. God is after you with welfare. He is going to take care of you. He will continue to be good to you. Mercy, consider the image. It's unconditional love. He is going to pursue you with love whether you deserve it or not. And nine times out of ten, dare I say ten times out of ten, we are never worthy of it. God is pursuing you with goodness and with mercy. Just consider the image of a sheepdog. I just contend. 
It's as if goodness is behind you directing you and mercy is uh, behind you protecting you. It's as if goodness is guiding your steps and mercy is picking you up when you stumble. It's like goodness is pursuing you in the valley and it's like mercy is rescuing you when you are in the far country. Try as you might, God is not going to let you go. He is going to chase you down. And did you notice a couple key words in this verse? It says he's surely going to chase you down. That means he is unfailingly going to find you. It's like the image of Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, when the shepherd left the 99 and he looked high and low until at last he did not rest until he found the one. So too, if you are a member of God's flock, if you are a sheep that hears his voice, he's not going to let you go. He will unfailingly chase you down. And did you notice, does it say he will follow you most of the days of your life? Some of the days of your life, the majority of the days of your life, of course you can read, it says all the days of your life, which should remind us that he who unfailingly chases us down is he who will unwaveringly chase us down. He is not going to chase you down today and then give up on you tomorrow. If you are his, you are his. Nobody is going to snatch you out of the Father's hand. Surely, the psalmist says, goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. God is going to chase me down. Oh, is our shepherd not a good shepherd who keeps us safe, makes us sound, fills us up, and chases us down? That's all well and good, but the truth is we're still not home. And some of you may feel like, though that be true, I am still in a wasteland, a dry and weary land. I still feel like I'm in the valley. Is he ever going to get me back home? Man, there's no place like home. And the truth of the matter is, I believe Psalm 23 ends the way it does in verse 6 to illustrate for us for all time that the same God who did all these wonderful things for you, that same God is going to bring you home. God is going to finish what he started. He is not going to quit on you. The image is so clear to us, it almost appears that he's left the shepherd imagery altogether, for he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is probably recollecting by the word dwell, which means to remain or sit down in the presence of, I am going to sit and stay forever in this spot that I want to be in. God is going to bring me like a sheep back to the sheepfold, and at last I am going to rest. Now let's consider where he's speaking of. Of course, we all know, generally speaking, David's talking about heaven. Why else would he use the word forever? But let's consider precisely what he means by heaven. He says we're going to dwell in the house of the Lord. That means we're going to dwell where God is. We're going to be in the presence of God, the one for whom we were made. What glory awaits us when at last we who once had to confront our maker in a temple, we who once had to confront our maker in a tabernacle, will one day be in an eternal temple. We will stand in the presence of God in the great glory of heaven forever. What infinite joy awaits us when we will at last be in the house of the Lord. We will not just have a quick pass by. 
We won't just have a quick visit. It says we will dwell in the house of the Lord. We're going to sit down and stay. We are going to live in his presence. We are going to be a living embodiment of Revelation 21 and verse 3 when it says God is going to live with us. He's going to dwell with us. We are going to be his people and he is going to be our God. Oh, praise the Lord that there is a day coming when you are finally going to get home and you are going to get to stay a while. In fact, the verse says forever. The last word of Psalm 23 is the first word of eternity. We are going to spend forever in the presence of our maker. Friends, take heart. We are going to soon be home. Thus concludes the famed Psalm of the Shepherd. But I wonder, once again, do you know the shepherd of this psalm? Do you? Is the Lord your shepherd? I wonder, do you actually know him to be the good shepherd that John tells us laid down his life for the sheep? Have you forgotten that you have a shepherd who died for you so that you would not have to die for your sin? Who took the punishment for you so that you would not have to be punished for your sin? Have you forgotten that yours is a good shepherd? Do you know him to be the great shepherd that Hebrews tells us not only died for our sin, but rose for us? Have you forgotten that this same shepherd who died for you is risen and reigning for you this moment? He is not only your good shepherd, he is your great shepherd. Do you know him to be the chief shepherd, as Peter tells us, who is not only one who died for us and not only one who rose for us, but is one who is coming again for us? Do you know him as your chief shepherd? If you're wondering, then I pray you would hear my final word to you this day. You will never know the Lord as your shepherd until you know the shepherd as your Lord. You need to recognize that if you want to belong to the flock of God, if you want to come home, so to speak, there is but one way. John tells us, I am the good shepherd and I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the narrow gate. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And so my plea to you this day is if you want to know the shepherd as the good, great chief shepherd that he is, you must come to Jesus. For only through him can you taste life eternal. But lest you think it's just a mere matter of saying, sounds good, let me get through that door so that I can enjoy the sweet peace of the flock of God, you must also remember with me that the Bible also says that if you get into the sheepfold, but you don't know the shepherd's voice, you don't follow his commands, you are not a sheep. John tells us you're a predator, you're a wolf that's gotten in, which means the call of Christ to us this day is twofold. It is not merely to come to him through the gate. It is to follow him, to hear his voice, to listen, 
to know him and to be known by him. And so that is the invitation, the great invitation to you as we conclude our study of the 23rd Psalm is to come to Jesus. He is the only way. Follow him. Hear the shepherd's voice. He is good. He is great. He is your chief shepherd. And if you do this, you can join us in all creation as we journey through this life on our way home, singing together the sweetest of songs ever sung. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear any evil because he's with me. His rod and his staff, they're going to comfort me. He is preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He's anointing my head with oil, so my cup is overflowing. Surely then, goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. And I, you, we are going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. Praise God. He's never going to let you go. Why don't you join me as we pray? And with your heads bowed as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment, the call of the 23rd Psalm to you is to consider anew. Do you know the shepherd? Do you recognize his voice? Does he know your name? If you are uncertain of this, in a moment we're going to stand and sing, and that is the time when Christ is calling you to confess your sins and to throw your full weight, hope, and trust on Jesus, the good shepherd who died for you, who rose for you, and is coming again for you. Enter by the narrow gate. He is the door. You come to Jesus this day. There are men down here at the front, and the only reason they're here is to meet you and pray with you. Perhaps you know him. You've gone into the fold, but you're uncertain. You recognize how prone you are to wander, and you want to confess that you have seen yourself as the one who's kept yourself safe. You have not seen his healing hand making you sound, filling you up, and chasing you down. Perhaps you'd like to come down here and pray. There'll be men who would love to pray with you, or the steps are open for you to pray on your own accord. This is, in other words, a time for us to respond to the goodness and grace we have tasted in this incomparable psalm. Join me as we pray, and let me ask the Lord to seal to your soul that which I have no power to do. Father in heaven, by the power of your spirit and to the glory of Jesus, come and move in this room such that every man, woman, and child would see you to be that which you really are, the good, great, and chief shepherd of our souls. We long for the day you bring us home, but until that day comes, may we find with full assurance of faith your word to be true, that you will never, ever let us go. You're gonna keep us safe, make a sound, fill us up, and chase us down. Till that day comes when we are home with you at last. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you for shepherding us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? As we stand and as we sing, the call to you this hour is to come.